You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, for our listeners, we're going to devote this episode to something we do fairly regularly on this podcast, which is take stock of a few uh, stories related to Asia's maritime flashpoints. On this episode in particular, I think we're going to check back in on a uh, mainstay here at the podcast, uh, which is the situation in the South China Sea. We have something to talk about there with the recent incident uh, involving the ramming and sinking of a Vietnamese fishing vessel by a China Coast Guard ship. And we'll also talk a little bit about the situation in and around the Taiwan Strait, where we've seen a uptick in Chinese military activity going back to January around the time of the Taiwanese elections, and more recently with the election of uh, Johnny Chung as the um, KMT's new chairperson. So we'll talk a little bit about those developments. But uh, Prashant, let's start by talking a little bit about the South China Sea, since the two of us have written about this in in recent days. Mm -hmm. So the incident, as I understand it, is that a Vietnamese fishing boat with eight crew members was sunk after being hit by a China Coast Guard ship near the disputed Paracel Islands, which are one of the groups of disputed uh, features in the South China Sea, claimed in their entirety by Vietnam and China, largely administered by China, which uh, among several features also has Woody Island, which is one of the largest natural features in the South China Sea, uh, and certainly the largest uh, Chinese military outpost in the South China Sea. Um, so this is by far not a new thing. Uh, China has been using its Coast Guard, its maritime militia, its Navy in the South China Sea to coerce other claimant states for years now. Um, but what has been notable is this incident taking place amid the global situation with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and this incident actually led to the U.S. State Department sharply criticizing um, China for um, opportunistically using the pandemic to press its claims. Uh, so the U.S. State Department pushed back in a statement uh, calling the incident with the Vietnamese fishing boat um, just the latest in a long string of PRC actions to assert unlawful maritime claims and disadvantage its Southeast Asian neighbors in the South China Sea. The State Department statement also said, we call on the PRC to remain focused on supporting international efforts to combat the global pandemic and to stop exploiting the distraction or vulnerability of other states to expand its unlawful claims in the South China Sea. So Prashant, uh, you wrote a little bit about uh, this incident. Uh, tell us a little bit more about... Um, you know, what what we are to make of this. I mean, is this necessarily an uptick um, in, in China opportunistically using the pandemic to press its claims? Or is this really more of what we've come to know as just business as usual in the South China Sea? Uh, we've seen incidents like this before. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I, I think that is the biggest question, right? To what extent do we see this in terms of continuity and uh, versus change? And I think this sort of framing of the fact that the Chinese are on some sort of strategic campaign to utilize the coronavirus pandemic to seize the opportunity in the South China Sea. Look, I mean, I don't think we should you know, rule that out necessarily, but I definitely think that in terms of the actions and what they're doing, even if we were to just set aside the question of speculating about motivations, their behavior is the same as what it was before. I mean, as you correctly mentioned, Things like using the maritime militia, you know, the landing of military aircraft on facilities, um, setting up new quote-unquote research stations and, and surveillance outlets, and harassing vessels as, as they did here. Obviously, there are you know, contrasting accounts from the Chinese and Vietnamese sides as we often see about what exactly happened, but the actions are fairly similar. And I think how I would frame it is 
you know, China has been on this business of suggesting that, you know, really since you know, the last five, 10 years, that there is a consistent pattern of it in incrementally advancing what it sees as its lawful claims at the expense of all the other claimants, whereas there's been a strong international consensus that China's claims, including the nine dash line, uh, most prominently are, are unlawful. So that is essentially what's going on. Now, when the Chinese choose to ratchet up the pressure on how they're advancing those claims, and when they choose to sort of turn it down a little bit, that changes over time. But I don't see this necessarily. And I don't think we have the evidence to suggest that they're on some sort of strategic campaign in the midst of a pandemic to ration up. I, I, as they often are, are want to do, you know, with respect to the situation, on the one hand, they're trying to recover their image uh, from the coronavirus, where, you know, this is a pandemic that started from China, they're doling out assistance, promoting their sort of soft power image. But then on the other hand, continuing on their activities in the South China Sea and, and in other flashpoints as well, because I don't think the Chinese see any contradiction between managing their image and advancing what they see as their own interests. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I found interesting, um, I guess, in the very quick U.S. reaction to this story um, is that it's been interesting to see the U.S. kind of more forcefully come out and support Vietnam in specific after many of these incidents. So Vietnam in particular has seen the brunt of a lot of coercive activity in the South China Sea in recent years, particularly as uh, China's relations with the Philippines have improved. Uh, 2017 was a bit of an exception. That summer we had uh, Coast Guard, uh, People's Liberation Army, Navy, and maritime militia vessels, for example, uh, patrolling around Titu Island as the Philippines was trying to uh, upgrade the uh, airstrip there. But um, last year we had the survey ship conducting um, all sorts of exploration activities in Vietnam's uh, exclusive economic zone where there are um, oil blocks that the Vietnamese have um, c consistently faced pressure on, including in uh, 2017 when Vietnam uh, suspended drilling operations with the Spanish firm Repsol in the area. Um, but last year, after the survey ship activity, um, the Department of Defense and the State Department released statements with DOD actually calling uh, on China to end what it called, quote, bullying behavior, uh, which was a fairly um, forceful statement from the United States publicly in support of Vietnam, which is a partner, but certainly not a treaty ally like the Philippines. So that's been interesting to watch. And uh, I think we see continued support for Vietnam. Of course, uh, we can also talk a little bit about the fact that, of course, um, USS Theodore Roosevelt, the uh, Nimitz-class supercarrier, had just visited Da Nang. Of course, uh, Theodore Roosevelt has been in the news recently for other uh, other reasons, including the sacking of its captain um, amid um, broader concerns about how the U.S. Navy is uh, set to manage the challenge of COVID-19 on its vessels. But um, it is it is interesting to me that um, we are seeing a, a pattern emerge in how the United States is speaking out in support of Vietnam after many of these incidents. Uh, do you see that same pattern, Prashant? No, I, I think that's definitely fair. Uh, we, we have seen U.S. rhetoric uh, being dialed up, and I think in terms of operational uh, activities in the South China Sea, including what we've talked about before, freedom of navigation operations under the Trump administration initially, we, de we did see those activities dialed up. I, I think the big question uh, for US policy in the South China Sea though, is that there is still this big, you know, uber question about US commitment to the South China Sea, which is, yes, we, we are seeing these, you know, epi episodic attention to the South China Sea issue, but I think the big question for all these Southeast Asian claimants is, you know, eventually if there is a big crisis or flashpoint uh, where China is actually engaged in this campaign, is the United States going to actually 
uh, come to the defense of these Southeast Asian states, particularly since, I mean, as you noted, I mean, we, we've talked about in this podcast, you know, the Visiting Forces Agreement, uh, which is a U.S.-Philippine agreement that has, you know, that was set up partly in the context of the Philippine challenges in the South China Sea in the 1990s. Now, the, the Philippines is itself, you know, leading to a revision of that under President Duterte. So there's a lot of uncertainty about broader U.S. policy on the South China Sea, but I think we can fairly say that um, U.S. actions in the South China Sea, episodically at least, have been uh, cons consistent. Uh, and in some cases, there's been a little bit uh, of an uptick. I, I do think as well, from a Vietnamese perspective, that international support is extremely important for them, because I think the Vietnamese nightmare scenario in the context of 2020 and early 2021 is, you know, they're the chair of ASEAN this year, they're holding a non-permanent seat at the United Nations, they have their party Congress coming up early next year. So the last thing that the Vietnamese want is to be embroiled in some kind of South China Sea crisis, you know, similar to the oil rig incident that we saw a few years ago, or even the the sort of uh, resource uh, issues that you mentioned that happened last year. I think that's the last thing they want to see. And part of that is, you know, seeking international support from the United States and, and other countries in that regard. Yeah. And I think, um, needless to say, uh, in the middle of this pandemic, um, more so than ever, if there is any kind of multilateral uh, Southeast Asian process, uh, whether through ASEAN or perhaps even minilaterally through um, perhaps some of the claimant states, um, there's not going to be a lot of political bandwidth for countries to devote to dealing with the South China Sea issue at the time when the number one thing on every country's agenda right now, including Vietnam's, uh, is dealing with the pandemic in the short term. So that, I think, is another consideration here, not only U.S. resolve, but also finding um, any space regionally to deal with this issue right now at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, well, let's uh, shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, the Taiwan Strait. Uh, we haven't come back to talking about Taiwan in a while now, uh, but it has been interesting to me to note the persistent pattern and particularly the upticks even in the middle of this pandemic of Chinese military activities in and around the Taiwan Strait. Um, I think um, there have been a few events driving this politically. Of course, we had the historic uh, re-election of uh, President Tsai Ing-wen and the Democratic Progressive Party. Um, which um, ended up racking up the highest uh, cumulative vote total in uh, Taiwan's history as a democracy with more than 8 million votes uh, for the DPP. It was a resounding um, mandate of support from the Taiwanese people for the DPP leadership, which obviously Beijing has not been happy with over the last four years, to say the least. Um, the mainland has been on a campaign to shrink uh, a Taiwan's international space by plucking away diplomatic allies, most recently the Solomon Islands and Kiribati uh, in, in the Southern Pacific, uh, but also other countries. Um, but let's just go through this catalog of the uh, of, of activities. I mean, I will note that, uh, you know, in the context of what we were just talking about with the ramming incident in the South China Sea, the reason I thought this would make sense to pair on the podcast is because we actually had reports uh, in the end of March that a uh, Taiwan Coast Guard administration vessel um, was struck by a Chinese fishing boat, um, rammed by a Chinese fishing boat uh, near Kinmen, which is one of the Taiwanese-held islands, um, on the mainland side of the Taiwan Strait. So it's interesting to note the the continued use of maritime coercive means, uh, in this case, um, probably one of the uh, maritime militia assets that China is known to operate in the East China Sea, South China Sea, and, and Taiwan Strait. But apart from that, we've just seen the People's Liberation Army Navy and People's Liberation Army Air Force, um, both of which have emphasized operations in and around the Taiwan Strait, 
exceptionally since 2015, around the time the PLA was reorganized. But on January 21st, we saw multiple um, air, uh, a Chinese Air Force uh, Su-30 and Y-8 aircraft fly through the Bashi Channel, which is south of Taiwan, a major uh, strategic air and waterway for the Chinese Navy and Air Force. Um, that followed up a couple days later on January 23rd with another flyby involving an H-6 bomber aircraft and a KJ-500 airborne early warning and control aircraft. Um, that continued into February. And keep in mind, this is all as uh, China had locked down Wuhan uh, with um, the coronavirus crisis at the time being a major epidemic in the region. Uh, but also this was right after uh, the, the Taiwanese elections. And uh, this has really continued. So I talked a little bit about this collision incident that happened, but um, most recently, I think um, we had another incident of um, Chinese fighters um, flying through the Taiwan Strait and even circumnavigating Taiwan at one point in February. Uh, And also in the meantime, we have had a couple uh, transits by U.S. naval vessels through the Taiwan Strait. That's been something that's uh, ticked up quite a bit under the Trump administration since 2017 or so uh, under under, um, the broader... Uh, ages of increasing U.S. support to Taiwan and also supporting the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy in general. But it's 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 interesting to see, I mean, uh, the Taiwanese argument, I mean, again, I was just in Taiwan around a month ago, was that many of these moves were uh, seen at the time as China perhaps opportunistically actually using the pandemic to, um, or the epidemic at the time, to uh, ramp up its pressure on Taiwan to show that Despite the difficult internal situation in China, um, there would be no tolerance for what China sees as a drift in Taiwan towards, you know, quote, independence-leaning sentiment or what the Chinese mainland calls separatism. Uh, so that, I think, has, has really continued here. Um, but uh, it's, it, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if um, this, is, this can be sustained throughout the year, right? I mean, there has been a lot of talk recently about how Taiwan is actually benefiting tremendously from its ability now to export face masks and uh, conduct what appears to be a very successful uh, campaign, um, a soft power campaign, uh, given its own success with containing COVID-19 internally and sharing some of that expertise with the world. Um, a lot of scrutiny has cropped up around the world of Taiwan's continued status outside of the World Health Organization, and even uh, despite its status, or perhaps because of its status outside of the World Health Organization in many ways, the Taiwanese, um, at least I was told um, in, in Taipei, were, were quite skeptical about the early advice that was coming out of the World Health Organization, which has since been criticized by political leaders in the West especially. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been interesting to see, I mean, how, how this is playing out. How do you think this is actually going to uh, end up affecting um, U.S.-Taiwan policy over the long run, Prashant? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it has been an interesting development in the context because, you know, in, in the Trump administration, I think uh, you've seen a lot of inroads happen with respect to U.S.-Taiwan relations. Uh, they've happened uh, oftentimes despite what President Trump has been saying, uh, rather than because of what he's been saying in his own posture. I think, you know, we, we did see in the beginning, you know, sort of the phone call to, to President Tsai Ing-wen and, and, and all of that. But I, I think in terms of the consistency of the U.S. bureaucracy in advancing the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, we really have seen some unprecedented steps. And and to the Trump administration's credit, that has continued even amidst the coronavirus, right? So we saw uh, Trump signing of the Taipei Act recently, even in, in the midst of the coronavirus. Uh, we've seen uh, a number of U.S. transits across the Taiwan Strait this year, immediately following the re-election of Tsai Ing-wen. 
So U.S.-Taiwan relations and, and even uh, the statements of U.S. officials, um, even high-ranking U.S. officials uh, such as Mike Pompeo, um, I think the Taiwanese are very appreciative uh, of that. And I, I think in terms of the, the bigger questions moving forward, which you alluded to, I, I still think there are a lot of questions that remain unresolved. I think the big variable here is the state of the U.S.-China relationship and U.S.-China tensions amidst the coronavirus and and will they actually intensify or, or abate? And if they intensify, can they risk spilling over into the Taiwan Strait? Because there are a number of flashpoints by which, you know, US-China tensions can manifest themselves. And then I, I think the other one is is really, you know, the, the run up to US elections, which is always a very interesting period for US foreign policy in terms of, you know, worrying about the consistency of US policy, but then the tendency for adversaries and competitors to actually capitalize on on election dynamics uh, during an election year. That's always a major concern. Uh, and then the last one is, is what you noted, which I do think is really important. I think both of the cases that we've talked about in the South China Sea and in Taiwan, you really are seeing a number of actors try to do two things simultaneously, which is, or, or maybe you could say three things amid, amid the coronavirus. One is dealing with the coronavirus situation in their own countries. Two, you know, asserting soft power diplomacy and trying to, once they get their own situation in order, more capable actors are trying to say, hey, this is what we can do for the international community. And then third is, you know, they have to do this while making sure they're paying attention to hard power and securing their own interests, whether it's in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. Now, China is just a much more capable actor relative to any of these other actors in Asia. So it's able to do all those three things at the same time without any concerns. But I think the big worry, uh, going back to your question at the, at the outset, is, is China using this asymmetric advantage to actually test other countries' abilities to be able to do all of these things at the same time? And I think that's really the testing dynamic that we're seeing. Yeah, no, I mean, um, in terms of testing, testing resolve, I guess you could say, I think there have been concerns in the United States that the broader state of readiness for uh, Indo-Pacific Command, for example, is not great right now, right? I mean, you've had a you've had a U.S. aircraft carrier get taken out by the pandemic uh, with the Theodore Roosevelt, um, and uh, I think there are broadly concerns about how the United States Navy would be able to respond to any kind of regional contingency in the middle of this pandemic. Um, but I think I think some of that is also overstated. Uh, I think uh, this will likely end up stabilizing soon, uh, particularly within the U.S. Armed Forces, even though. I think perhaps there was a high degree of complacency about how this would affect the readiness of the of the U.S. Navy. There have been multiple ships now with cases of COVID-19 on board uh, that have taken them out of circulation. So that is uh, something I think China will be uh, looking to test in, in the coming days and weeks. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think with respect, it, it is important to emphasize, too, I mean, the, um, the situation with respect to the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea, I mean, these are very complex uh, flashpoints as it is, and the tendency for accidents, miscalculation, or deliberate provocation remains high even without the coronavirus pandemic. So when you have that pandemic layer on top of all of this, and you throw in U.S.-China tensions, you throw in a U.S. election, uh, and you throw in all of these operational difficulties that we're talking about, you know, you can see why there's a lot of uncertainty and stress uh, among folks and a lot of worries, even though a lot of this reflects, you know, more continuity than change in many respects, right, in terms of the structural dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I guess uh, the scary thing is that it's still early days as far as the broader geopolitical story of COVID-19's actual impacts 
uh, are concerned. So uh, I suspect we'll be um, tracking several more changes in this area in the weeks and months to come. But uh, Prashant, I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Great. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, so for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or any other, any other number of podcast providers. And finally, before we close, a note from our sponsors. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of the Diplomat, the Asia Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. And one final note before we close out today's episode, uh, please note that The Diplomat is very pleased to have removed all of our ongoing reporting, analysis, uh, and commentary on COVID-19 in Asia from outside of our regular metered paywall. Uh, so if you're a listener who hasn't yet subscribed to The Diplomat, uh, you can access all of that reporting um, on an unlimited basis for free. So I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Uh, and if you like what you see, please do subscribe. Uh, we, we really do appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.